is the Next Trip Podcast with Aviation Insiders Doug and Drew. Together, with more than 40 years of industry experience, they are creating a network for other app geeks and travel enthusiasts to obsess about all things aviation. All thoughts and opinions are their own. Good day and welcome to Boarding Pass 139, operating on July 25th, 2022. This is Drew and I'm here with my fellow industry insider, Doug. Doug is an airline pilot and I'm an airline ops manager and private pilot trainee. A quick apology for last week's episode where my mic failed mid-taping and I had to use a random gaming headset. Doug, you said it looked like I, I was playing World of War- Warcraft. It, it, it did. It looked like you were some, playing some, some kid's game right now, like sitting in your parents' basement yelling at other people sitting in their, in their parents' basement. Yeah. No offense to gamers if they listen to us. It just looks funny. Well, Andy is a big gamer, so when he when we had him on the show, that's what it looked like, right? Yeah. It looked like he was in a dark room with all this stuff around all this equipment. <laughs> all right, anyway, Doug, you're in the Midwest. You're enjoying a long family vacation. Tell us how it's going, and tell us uh, if you got there in one piece, whatever whatever that means. First of all, you sent these pictures. Look, they look beautiful. It looks like Europe. It's like a mountain train or whatever going up with a with a beautiful view of this green and rivers. It looks like Switzerland. Yeah, pe- well, it doesn't look like Switzerland, but people think that Iowa is just flat and corn. And I, I'm not going to say the name of the town that I'm in because we had a certain listener who said that I talk about it too much. I'm, I'm not going to say the name of the town, but I'll talk about the town. Sorry, Tyler. <laughs> It's on the Mississippi River, which is very hilly and and lots of bluffs. And yeah, it it does look like certain places in Europe just from that standpoint. We've had a blast yesterday. The kids and Marissa and I and and my mom is here too. We went up this cable car up to the the top of the hill that overlooks the Mississippi River. Cable car. car. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's an old river town that they've really done a good job of bringing tourism in by having things like that i mean this this cable car dates back to the late 1800s tyler doesn't want you to you to say it but i can say it yeah i can say the code <laughs> D, dbq dubuque I don't, I don't talk about dubuque a lot but i'm telling you the dubuque tourist council should really promote this because it looks beautiful and they can show pictures of the long lines in amsterdam and the bags piled up at london heathrow and be like hey you know look at these views it, it People thought it was Europe. Come visit us. It's a shorter flight. Well, it's it's funny you say that because we we flew into Chicago, which meant that we had to to drive across the Mississippi River to get into Dubuque because it's in Iowa. And as we we were on the bridge crossing into Dubuque, there was actually a river cruise ship that was docked at the the harbor in Dubuque, just like, like a, a, a river, cruise, river cruise, just like a European river cruise. And right. Marissa Marissa said, "Wait, what do you mean people cruise the river?" I said, yeah, people cruise the Mississippi River, just like they do in, wow. in Europe. And she said, well, that, that sounds really depressing. <laughs> and I said, well, no, like, look, look at it around here. Like, there, there's actually quite a bit to do. Lots of yeah. excursions that, that the passengers on the, on the ship can do. But yeah, there are Mississippi River cruises. It's, it doesn't quite have the same allure, I would say, as cruising the Rhine or the Danube right. the in history, Europe. Or, but... or, yeah, the history. But it, it, it's something that people do. But, you know, you say that, but there is a lot of history. So, like, Robbie and I would love, I don't know about a seven-day cruise uh, in the Midwest on a river, but definitely a day trip. I, I think that sounds great. The the hardest part of this trip was leaving. Getting home is going to be easier. We had a 5.30 a.m. flight on Sunday morning out of San Francisco, which meant that we had to drive to to the city the night before, got a hotel by the airport. And my kids thought that that was the vacation. And they yeah, actually they look really we're, happy. We're just in a courtyard. We happened to get a suite 
and they thought that that was our we that we were going to be in that hotel for the next week and they were loving life and i, and I was like <laughs> no we're we're flying to see family tomorrow we had to get up at uh, we the alarm went off at 2:45 because we had to leave mm-hmm. from the airport by like 3:15 3:30 mm-hmm. because i thought that it was going to be crazy checking the bags getting through security i dropped dropped the girls off marissa and the girls off at the the door where we could check our bags threw the bags inside with marissa and then i went to park the car by the time i came back marissa had already checked the bags we were ready to go through security security was super fast the girls did relatively well on the airplane i did get apple juice dumped all over my shorts and i got absolutely soaked but they did pretty well 757 300 older interior i I felt like i was in 2003 2004 but we love 757s on the show the airplane itself the flying itself was awesome You, you even though the 300 is underpowered compared to the 200, it's a pretty mm-hmm. steep, pretty steep climb gradient. Very smooth. You even made the comment about the video that I sent from the landing that the wing looks like a wide body wing with the Fowler flaps. It's, a, it, it's basically a 767 it, wing. It's it's a little you bit know, smaller, but it has that look. Yeah, it's a narrow body, but it has the feel of a wide body with the landing gear, the wings, the flight deck. Yeah, it does. The real interesting part then came after we landed and we picked up our luggage because we had to find the car rental place in Chicago. And it used to be you walk right outside the, the baggage door or up, up from baggage claim and a bus picks you yeah. up and takes you. Well, they built this new consolidated rental facility like a lot of airports are going to. The signage was terrible. It didn't. It didn't huh. lead you to that. The signage still led you to the old bus pickup. The website for the car rental company led you to the old bus pickup. So we first went there and couldn't. We, like no buses were coming by. We asked a police officer, and they said, "Oh yeah, just go down to to that pier and wait." And we waited. Nothing. This would have been fine, but we had two kids who had been awake at two thirty in the morning, yeah. and I was carrying two car seats, one on the front, one on the back, two suitcases. Ended up making it to the train. So public service announcement for anyone who's running a car in Chicago, don't follow the signs. You have to go upstairs, over the road, back down to the train station to take the train to the consolidated facility, which is not yet on the maps for the train. That is crazy. And you're someone who's uh, a pretty astute traveler. And And I I struggled with it. Yeah. And that's this is an airport where our airline has a hub. It's not like this know, is the this is the third the large third largest metro area in the United States, one of the largest metro areas in North America, and one of the yeah. busiest airports in the world. And the signage was awful. And then the the facility was beautiful, brand new Carnival facility. Well, that's good. So the train is running again. It is. Okay, and I wonder. Cool. I wonder because it was down for like a year. I, I know for upgrades and emergency maintenance, but I, I wonder if a lot of it too was they were finishing that consolidated rental facility as well. Yeah, that might be it. We're going to talk more about planning and use you as an example of what you did later on in this segment. You're coming back. I think you're leaving in a few days, in a couple days, and you're going to be Mm -hmm. tomorrow. And your reserve block starts tomorrow or the day after, and you have a a pressed suit that's ready to go in case you get get called during your trip. It does. We get back tomorrow evening, and I have a reserve block that starts on Saturday. We, we, we fly back Friday, start Saturday. I have a uniform in my bag here, just a shirt and tie, my shirt and tie and pants, because that if, if I fly a domestic trip, I don't have to wear the jacket and the hat because it's summer. 
So I, I basically have just a, a shell of a uniform so I can fly a domestic trip if I have to. I have my my suit, suit coat and hat in the car at the airport in San Francisco in case I get put on an international trip. The reason why I have the stuff in my bag right now is if we have travel issues getting home tomorrow night, what I can do is I can just put my uniform on a jump seat back to San Francisco. And then Marissa yeah. can take take the girls and get home when, whenever they're able to. Because I, I need a backup. Like Even yeah. though I'm not scheduled to work until Saturday, I, I need a backup to be able to get back. And it's easier right, to Right, so you need seat. to be in position Saturday morning Correct. to fly out of Spo. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be good weather from what I see. So, And you're leaving early again, I'm sure? Yeah, it's like mid, mid, mid-afternoon but because we, okay. we have to leave here and drive to the airport and turn into the rental car and then do that train backwards. <laughs> At least we know where, where we're good going practice. now. Yeah. Well, you, All right. you had, while I was here playing in a, a golf league I, I i was a sub in in my buddy's golf league and we've been at the pool every single day and taking this funicular up up the european alps mountain <laughs> that's, side, that's exactly what it was yeah, yeah it's like portugal or someplace yeah exactly you were you were doing the actual real work i was doing the real work and you know it's a bad day when you ask me hey how's the hub holding up and you don't hear from me for like <laughs> 10 hours that for like means 10 hours <laughs> yeah i'm keeping the wheel i'm trying to keep the wheels on the bus <laughs> thunderstorms we're used to and diversions we're used to but um we had that at the same time <laughs> mm-hmm. you know good and bad is mostly bad for customers because planes are diverting everywhere there's thunderstorms in newark we are now starting to get so the list starts getting bigger and bigger on our system we can see what diversions we're getting and it was up to eight and then i'm getting a call from dispatch hey can you take this one can you take this one i'm like actually no so we are at saturation right now if they have no place to go they need to land somewhere yeah send them but tell them it'll be a short wait until we can get them a gate and services because we have our own operation because right now it's five o'clock right that's our right in the that's middle our of your, your prime time. time yeah and eight additional flights on top of that so i'm telling dispatcher you know you can send them, we'll, we'll manage them, but it's not going to be fast. Plus, you know that we're about to shut the ramp down because of a thunderstorm. Mm-hmm. Because I'm watching the radar as he's talking to me. I'm like, you're sending them into a thunderstorm, and you're sending them into an airport that's not going to be able to service these crews, these flights, possibly for two hours. One of them just hung up on me. Because, not, not because he's being, <laughs> not because it, he's being rude, but he's he, probably has planes else. that he's trying yeah. to... Yeah, and I'm not... You know, you're a pilot. This is a this is a safety situation. You're trying to set the plane down. If you're flying in from the Caribbean, you don't have a lot of fuel. If you're flying in from Europe, you don't have a lot of fuel to think about this for an hour. You're going to pick your alternate and you're going to go. At the airline, we have a scatter plan so that my airport doesn't get everything. But the pilots for crew issues or for airplane maintenance issues, they want to come to our station because we have other planes, we have other crews. But anyway, long story short, the weather was approaching us. So that list of eight plus another three more that they're asking me about, they went to other stations. We only got three. I actually felt guilty because some of the stations that got them were very small and there were international wide body flights with no customs. So it was a really bad situation. You know, just saying if our weather was good, they would have all come here and they would have had to sit for an hour, but it would be better than being at Baltimore and waiting for hours upon hours with very little staffing. These planes have to be cleared by CBP. So if a 777 goes to Norfolk, 
guess what happens? There's a CBP agent that's going to be driving from the Washington area or someplace with a laptop to, if we're lucky, to process 300 people. Mm -hmm. I mean, just imagine what nightmare that is. So what they will do is, even though it's a long taxi time and people are on for like three hours, we'll try and get that plane to Washington or Newark where we have custom so we can clear the passengers and bags because it's just not feasible to do it in Norfolk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we can land there, but after that, the after the cleanup is just crazy. And here's the fun part. So after all this, you have to go out drinking, or I do, <laughs> right? Just to talk about it, just to feel better. Just, or just, just to, to debrief. Vent. Yeah. Just to debrief. So I called my buddy at uh, the FAA tower who's going through. His job was actually easier because a lot of the planes went to other cities, so they didn't have that congestion mm-hmm. at Dulles. So I'm like, hey, let's go out. We got to talk about this. So we went to uh, where we normally go for drinks. This is basically an ATC tower soup, a Gulfstream four pilot, and an airport ops manager walk into a bar. (laughs) It's the start of a joke. (laughs) And then family shows. So I'll leave it at that. But we we were talking about um, private pilot stuff because Joe, the ATC tower soup, he's also a pilot. So we're talking about that, talking about the operation. And then people hear us talking and this Gulfstream four pilot is like, are you guys pilots? And of course he was our best friend for the next three hours. And we closed the bar down. (laughs) (laughs) Commiserating about the weather and all that. So it was great. And I'm talking, I'll talk more about that in the next segment. Was he there on a layover? The Gulfstream four pilot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. On a layover. He was from, uh, lived in Florida, but his company was based in Van Nuys, California. Okay. Interesting. So interesting. Well, despite all the bad news you hear about travel right now, we actually had a smooth trip with two young kids and a lot of luggage. Relatively smooth. You heard the story at the top. With some planning, (laughs) you can avoid being caught up in what we call ear ops or irregular ops and make travel less stressful during a busy period. We talked about our buddy Nate stressing out about a trip from Dallas to Seattle months prior. He just completed that yesterday and it was a breeze, Doug. He got a free upgrade. He got great service on board. Doug, you plan to avoid obstacles, including pre-positioning the family at an SFO airport hotel the night before, as we talked about. Tell us about your planning and give us give the listeners some advice on summer travel. As I talked about, we left a day early and stayed at a hotel. We, we do that a lot. If we have an early-ish flight, something in the morning, we'll just go down the day prior. That way, we're not stressing trying to get out of out of the house at one o'clock in the morning, one thirty in the morning, you never know what, what obstacles might come up. You might do a drive to the airport 10 times. And that 11th time there's a road closure. There's torrential rains that come through that you're not expecting lots of different variables. The most stressful part of a trip is just getting out of the house and getting mm-hmm. off the ground. Once you get, once you get to the oh. gate, uh, honestly, once you get through security, it's all out of your hands and, and you're in the airline's hands at that point. You might have a flight delay. You might miss a can or you might miss a connection. It's out of your hands. It, it'll, it'll get sorted out. Everything that you can control, if you can remove some of those variables, you're going to have a much less stressful travel experience. And that's why we stay at an airport hotel. You can find lots of different airport hotels, good deals, bad deals, whatever it is, it's, it's worth paying a hundred dollars sometimes to have that peace of mind to know that you're right at the hotel. You don't have to worry about getting out the door early in the morning and then take the time that the airline says to show up and add like maybe 30 minutes onto that. What we were being told at San Francisco was 
show up two hours prior. And I said, mm-hmm. even like, even though I fly out of San Francisco all the time and I I've seen the lines and they ha- for security and for bag check, it hasn't been terrible. I still added 30 minutes because I thought an additional 30 minutes to an hour sitting at the gate in the dark morning is better than standing in line for security looking at your watch saying the airplane is boarding soon. Oh, I, the worst. I have two young kids that we have to get through. Even if you don't have kids, you've seen families traveling with children, trying to get through the security line, putting all their stuff on the conveyor belt, trying to get one kid to walk through at a time and not both at the same time. Like there, there's just a lot going on. I know that people like to be efficient, meaning you show up at the airport and then at the gate, right when it's boarding, because a lot of people yeah. don't like that sit time. I can tell you your stress level is going to be cut in half if you just add a little extra time to be able to get there and and not have to worry about it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we've all seen, I I think, one hour security line waits. That's happening all over the country, all over the world, for sure. If, you know, more than one one hour. Yeah. You know, for us, for the AvGeeks... I think we're we don't have a problem with this because we're getting to the airport the day before, <laughs> you know, and just being there makes you feel calm and you know we're at the airport and just like you said, the kids enjoyed it. They their their vacation was starting early. Yeah, it was. But it was like a staycation before the vacation mm-hmm. started. Yeah, I want to talk about so leaving early is the key. So it's almost like you're using the non-rev standard operating procedure even when you're flying revenue, revenue. during mm-hmm. a busy time, right? You leave early because usually the planes are already there. They're ready to go. You don't have to worry about connections. You don't have to worry about things that may have happened during the day that now you're subject to because you're leaving in the afternoon. Two million things could have happened. Maintenance delays, crew delays, this time of year, thunderstorms. So get there early. I'm not an early bird, but for flights, I want to get there early because I know everything that can happen. And you run out of options if you get to SFO at 3 p.m. for a flight to the East Coast, there's not much more. Yeah, that's because the last, getting... that's the last flight until the, the three or four red eyes six hours red later. And, and then you're losing half a day or an yeah. entire night at the location that you're going to. And especially with car rentals, because car you don't pay up front. Well, most of the time, you don't pay up front for the car rental. You pay when you get there. Which means if if you don't show up within thirty minutes or so of your reservation time, they can just give your car away. If your flight is super delayed and you get in late to the car rental place, they may not have your car anymore. So that's another tip: is if you get delayed, and like for us, I put noon as our car rental pickup time. If we were going to be any any later than probably twelve thirty, I was going to call the location itself and tell them we are on hmm. X flight number coming in at X time, we are still coming. I'm still getting the car. We're just delayed. Please make sure that you still have a car available for me. I've, I've done uh, that before. Yeah. Luckily, I didn't yeah, have to do heard. that on, on this particular trip. But especially right now, car rental places are struggling just like the airlines because they sold their entire inventory during the pandemic. Now they're trying to build it back at the same time that there's a car a car shortage because of the chip right. shortage. Like, there, there's just all these variables that, that you really have to think about. And it just takes a simple call saying, I'm, I'm still picking up my car. We're going to be three hours late now. Please make sure that you still have my reservation. Oh, we talked about the airlines hate selling tickets, Munich to Frankfurt for a thousand dollars. It's a basically hate selling, you know, hate renting, right? <laughs> because the, the, the capacity is so low and you're paying like a thousand dollars for five days of 
car rental. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's that it's, there's a scarcity. We talked about early flights. The airlines also, so if you're on an early flight, the airlines put more emphasis on getting those early flights on time. I know our airline, we call them star flights, and it's start the airline right. Some airlines may call it kickoff flights, what have you. An airplane is there overnight, and that is the first flight of the day. The station has a lot of pressure on them to get that flight out on time because it's all about us. We have no one to blame, right? So we have to make sure everything is is organized and those kickoff flights leave on time because that could affect the whole day. So Nate was in uh, San Francisco and he was saying that his plane was towed up to the gate late. I will tell you right now, at our airline, we would be raked over the coals if a star flight, a kickoff flight, was towed to the gate late. Mm-hmm. Now, there may have been some issues. Maybe maintenance was continuing to work on it. But even for a two-minute delay on a kickoff flight, there's a long discussion. Why was this plane not ready? And we'll go to maintenance. Why was this overnight work not done to get this star flight on time? The reason I'm telling you all this is because if you are on an early flight, and that is the first flight of the day, you're going to leave on time unless something crazy is going on. We will even swap planes. So if that's a star flight, we'll take a, we'll sacrifice another plane that's maybe leaving later to get that kickoff flight on out on time yeah. and then, you know, try and recover. But why is it important, though, to get those out on it's, time? It's important because that is the first flight of the day for that plane and a half an hour delay on the first flight will have a ripple effect throughout the whole day. Exactly. Yeah. That's one thing. So just know if you're on an early flight, if that plane, and you can check, you know, you can check the routing of your plane with these apps. If your plane arrived the night before, you're in good shape, at least with our airline, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you're in good shape because there's going to be a lot of emphasis on getting your flight on time. If the flight is coming in on a red eye from SFO, for example, and then turning, go back. This is a good, this is a good example. Check the apps. The airline may show that it's on time, but it may be turning late off an overnight arrival and they haven't changed. They haven't adjusted the departure time yet. That's another way you can get a preview of what's going on. Yeah. One, can, can I add one final thing to this? Yeah. If you are going to a destination that requires a connection, I'm, I'm going to use my cousin for an example. Her son went to Salt Lake City for a camp a couple of weeks ago. She lives in a, a relatively small town, 100, 200,000 people in Illinois. They have no nonstop flights from Bloomington to Salt Lake. He had to hmm. connect through somewhere. If you have to connect because there is not a nonstop, do not take the last flight of the day. And I, I know oh. you mentioned this leaving from San Francisco. The same goes for anywhere. Yeah. He was not on the last flight of the day out of Bloomington, but he, he was on the last flight of the day from Dallas to Salt Lake. And he had a really pretty, a pretty tight connection time within an hour in Dallas. His flight out of Bloomington was delayed and he was going to miss his connection, which was the last flight of the night to Salt Lake. There was no way that the airline could get him to Salt Lake that day. Hmm. He got there a day late, started the camp a day late. So if you are going to have to connect and you're trying to get somewhere at a specific, on a specific day, do not take the last flight of the night because if there are ear ops, you're going to miss out like a cruise. My, my parents always, oh, always, always yeah. fly a day. They get in a day early. They, they get in the day yeah. before the cruise starts, even though you might board the ship at people think, Oh, you boarding starts at noon. The ship sails at five. I can get in at 10 o'clock in the morning on the day of the cruise and I'll be fine. 
no, do not <laughs> no, do that. Do it. Get don't in do it. at least a day early. My, my parents actually yep. now get in two days early and they spend two mm-hmm. days in, in a hotel. I know that a lot of this is, is extra cost and a lot of people can't really af- afford the extra cost. You just have to factor, you got to factor that in. into the cost of, of the trip. The vacation. Robbie and I took a cruise to um, Alaska, and we got there the day before. We made that part of the trip that we would we would walk around Vancouver, visit Vancouver, absolutely, and then the trip was the day after. Yeah. Early bird really does get the worm for travel because uh, so many things happen during the day, especially during summer and thunderstorms, weather, full flights. The other thing to do is check the uh, FAA website for the National Airspace uh, System status. We will have a link to that in this episode. This is what I check when I come into work to see what the system looks like. What is my day going to be? What is the weather like in Chicago and San Francisco? What is going to affect me? You should do that too. You don't have to know how to read an aviation METAR. It does have everything spelled out. It'll tell you which stations have weather problems, which stations are forecast to have weather problems. And if you're connecting through one of those, call your airline. See if you can connect through another one of their hubs and avoid Washington Dulles, which is where I work. If we're going to be in thunderstorms, you can avoid Charlotte, you can avoid Houston or Salt Lake City because snowstorms, whatever it is, you be be smart because you have to look out for yourself when you're traveling. There's thousands, millions of people traveling. You want to be the one that uh, that is strategic. <laughs> I hate to make it sound like a game, but it really is. And then Doug and I will tell you this all day. <laughs> When there's air ops, use that to your advantage because the airline will let you change flights with no fees. So you have all of the airline's route network at your, you know, at your service, you know, where it would cost you $100. Boom. Now you can change to whatever you want if there's seats on it. Mm -hmm. So avoid hubs that have any weather issues. And the other thing is just look at, just like Doug and I look at plan A, B, C, and D when we're non-revving, you have to do the same thing because even though you have a confirmed seat, if your plane's on maintenance and you're making a connection, you may not make it. So look for, make sure you have a plan B and you, we cannot, we cannot stress this enough. Use the airline apps. Don't stand in line. Use the app. You'll get a seat before those 40 people that are standing in line waiting to book the same seat. Yeah, this is a great way to avoid drama at the airport. Speaking of drama at the airport, are we done with the spirit merger drama? (laughs) (laughs) I wish I could say yes, but not even close, Doug. Here's a really quick update. So Frontier and JetBlue continue to fight to merge with Spirit. Frontier is done with the the one-upmanship with their last and best offer being a stock cash bid for $25 a share for Spirit and a $350 million fee if the merger is not approved. In a letter dated July 10th to Spirit, Frontier said its current offer is, quote, last, best, and final. JetBlue is offering an all-cash offer of $33.50 a share, almost $10 a share more, and a $400 million termination fee. Next. Yeah. Anything else? The, 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 vote, the vote still hasn't happened. Once it does, we'll talk about that. And then we have probably 18 months of drama with whoever the, the final suitor is that Spirit chooses we have lots of lots of drama to watch them merge. We will definitely be back to, to this topic. Thanks for skimming over that broken record fast, Drew. I think we're reaching spirit merger news fatigue. And speaking of broken records and repetition, let's get the news on the latest iterations of the 737, which we call the MAX. This news is coming out of the Farnborough Air Show in England. Delta Airlines ordered 100 Boeing 737-10s with options on a further 30 
Miami-based investment firm 777 Partners ordered 3737s, buying both the 737-8 and the high-density 737-8200. ANA signed a deal for 20 737-8s with options on another 10, and Vietjet confirmed a previous order for 200 737s with a combination of Dash 10s and Dash 8s. All right, that's great news for Boeing and for the airlines that are looking ahead to future growth. Although this had me thinking, is the 737-10 with a capacity of 188 all the way up to 230 based on configuration, is that the low rent substitute for the mythical NMA, the new midsize aircraft, or the MOM, middle of the market? That's true. That's a whole other discussion that could take up an entire episode. Drew, I I know we've talked about Delta and their possible order for the 737 MAX. That was when there were still those white tails, the airplanes that hadn't hadn't been picked up. Do you think this is those? No, because because they they ordered the Dash 10. The the Dash 10 hasn't even been certified yet, and I know we're going to talk about that later. This is is big for Delta because this is their first Boeing order in over a decade. They had been really going toward Airbus recently, and, and the fact that they went with these 100 plus 30 options for a max is is a big win for Boeing and it's good for Delta to continue to get that mix and and kind of play Boeing and Airbus against each other. What really stands out with this to me is the Dash 10 getting all these orders, the the biggest one. I know. Which it's not even that's what I'm saying. It's 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 probably it's looking like a replacement. It's not even certified, but isn't it looking to you like it's the replacement for the 757? Right now. Yes, but but we like okay. Yes, I, I guess you can, yeah, and and even the A three twenty one is turning into a seven fifty seven replacement. But Drew, there's yeah. still not anything to replace the seven sixty seven. It doesn't it doesn't matter how many seats you pack into a a seven thirty seven Max ten or an A three twenty one Neo. There still is not a replacement but for a seven. There is a big gap that Airbus doesn't seem willing to fill. Boeing has talked about it. Someone needs to come in and fill that gap, the middle of the market or NMA with whatever we want to call it. That is a gap that needs to be filled and it needs to be filled fast. Well, I, I can tell you our airline and I'm not, I'm not an, making an official statement for anyone, but there was a time in 2016, there was a major airline that said <laughs> if they could restart the 767 line, that they would buy 50 examples of it off mm-hmm. the bat. And Boeing said no. Yeah. I don't get it. I, Doug, I don't get it. They're still making the KC, they're making a 767 variant, the KC-46 for the military, which is a refueling tanker. This was a missed opportunity, I think, because we could use a small wide body right now. Yeah, I, I agree. One thing I got to tell the listeners, because we talk about, you know, we throw these terms out. The 737 MAX, we're just going to start saying, just like we did, the 737-10, the 737-8, the 737-9. When you hear that, we are talking about the MAX. The next generation or the 737-NG, if we talk about that, that is going to be the 737-800-900. So the newer versions, the MAXs are dash 8, dash 9, dash 10, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, this could be a whole full episode in and of itself, but let's stay with the positive news. What's this about paperless bag tags? Doug, this is groundbreaking, and I, I'm excited to see this happen, and I'll talk about all the ways that this will help the airline and the customer. This is groundbreaking. This is like this how the 737 was in the 1960s. <laughs> Sorry, I can't let go of, <laughs> of 
the reiterations legacy of the, the broken record of the 737. All right, no, we're talking about electronic bag tags. Alaska Airlines becomes the first U.S. airline to launch electronic bag tags. Passengers will be able to activate the devices from anywhere 24 hours prior to their flight using the mobile app. Rollout of the first phase will initially include 2,500 Alaska Airlines elite flyers in late 2022. Mileage plan flyers will then have the ability to purchase the devices at around $70 by 2023. These tags are currently used by Air Dolomiti, Austrian, China Southern, Lufthansa, KLM, and Swiss. They're produced by a company called Bagtag, based in uh, Holland. Oh, Bagtag, com- really? That, that's very, I know. Yeah. That's what they could come up that's with. That's original. Yeah. Other companies, One Bagtag, <laughs> a little bit more <laughs> creative, and E-Tag, I like that, are making similar products. The tag does not need a battery, so I don't know if it runs solar power or what. Sent you a picture of it. What do you think? I think this looks good. A couple airlines in the U.S. are are kind of leading the charge with with trying to improve baggage and and the baggage systems. Delta went to RFID tags like five years ago before any other airline did, where it, it scans your tag along the way and you can follow in the app mm. and see where it's going. Alaska yeah. was the first, and to my knowledge, still the only in the U.S. where you can pre-order a sleeve for your 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 bag tag. They send it to your house, you put it on your bag, and then you print your tag at home. And I've, mm-hmm. I've done this. You print wow, your tag okay. at home within 24 hours of departure after you check in. You put it yeah. in the sleeve, and then you just drop it off at the at the kiosk and go. Like, you don't have to wait in line to check your bag because you already That's have... It's similar to this. It's, it's similar to this, just paperless. It's the same concept. So I, I think... And you don't have to pay $70 for the sleeve. No, I, I think that this is awesome. I, I really do yeah. hope that other airlines start to go with this because when, when I've done that a couple times with Alaska, it was so convenient to just print it at home, throw it in the sleeve, you get to the airport mm-hmm. and you basically just drop it almost like a bellhop at a hotel. Like, take this to my room. It's like, take this to my plane and you, you walk right. off and, and that's it. You, you don't have to wait in line. It's It's pretty innovative and I like it. From an airline perspective, this will be a dream come true. So I talked to Tyler, who works on the ramp for uh, another major airline. He does uh, non-rev lounge. If you haven't listened to that podcast, please do. These tags, Doug, they're electronic. So if there's IROPS, irregular operations, and the bag has been checked, now the airline changes the passenger's routing. Instead of connecting through Frankfurt, you're connecting through London. The tag will change. (laughs) electronically as you change their reservation. I cannot tell you how much of a help that is to the airlines because now we don't have to fish out that bag in the bag room that has thousands of bags and change the tag. The tag has changed. The t- The bag can stay in the cart wherever it is. And when they go out, when ramp scans it, it's now scan. it will scan a new tag for the new destination. I would almost think, so Alaska is going to be charging about $70 for these if they can make it cheaper, I would recommend the airlines. I mean, it is going to make the airlines job much easier and save us costs and manpower retagging these bags, which happens all day, multiple times, thousands of times, yeah. especially during irregular ops. I have one question. This picture that you put on here, it's an Alaska yep. bag tag. And this mm-hmm. this bag is going to Amsterdam, <laughs> and then Frankfurt. Why? <laughs> why, right. did they, why did they choose that for the example as opposed to like, Seattle and then Boise, which is what you would probably be doing on Alaska. Well, 
bag tag <laughs> this company that makes them is based in uh in the netherlands and they already do this for uh KLM, KLM so they probably had a file yeah, that, yeah, that file image yeah, that, but looking <laughs> at this going from amsterdam to de gaulle to frankfurt it seems like a non-rev itinerary well, but I, doug I, one more thing one more thing on one more thing on back bag tags before i forget and when you're traveling you have your electronic bag tag you know you're gonna have a tag if you don't have it already if there are any other barcodes on your bag take them the, off. the ramp t- please take them off because all the time we'll have a bag loaded on an international flight it will it will catch anything because it's all electronic it goes through the the belt system and it's scanned it may be a tag that i used from colombo to singapore in 2015 and it gets confused and the people that do the positive bag match it's like wait a minute there's a bag here that shouldn't be and then we look at the record there's a bag tag number that was scanned but no name associated you can't just let that go on the flight you have to research it so now we have to pull your bag off a triple seven and figure out what is the real tag for it so any old any old barcodes that are on your bag look around it because the scanner will catch it please take them off yep (laughs) Let's, (laughs) let's talk more about innovation and cutting edge Another thing that's very cutting edge is the Overture by Boom Aerospace. We've talked about this quite a bit. This is the supersonic transport concept aircraft, which may whisk 60 to 85 passengers from San Francisco to Tokyo in half the time it takes today using 100% sustainable aviation fuels or SAF. Boom has orders from United, JAL, and now the U.S. government. This week, we had some very big updates. Boom showed images of a sleeker aircraft with a larger forward fuselage tapering at the rear, an elongated nose, and four instead of two engines. Boom is saying four engines mounted on the wings instead of the tail will make the aircraft quieter and reduce operations costs. I just want to add, they're also trying to do this this quiet sonic boom. And the, uh-huh. the fact that we are now into redesign for the airplane, to me, mm-hmm. means that they, because I know they have a prototype that they're working on, this yeah. is a good sign that they're, good they're, sign. That they're tweaking the design to, to actually be able to, to go forward with it. This is the news from this week. Military, military contractor Northrop Grumman is firmly behind the project, which includes a military transport version. Boom also announced this week that Collins Aerospace will develop an anti-ice protection and air data systems for the aircraft. Drew, more good news. You have these big established aviation companies who are, who are on board with it. I, I know we were worried about the funding. We were saying, well, JAL gave them some money. United gave them some money. There's some startup and investment seed capital. Where is, where's the rest of the money going to come from? If someone like Collins and Northrop Grumman had been able to look at this program and say, we are fully on board with it. I think that this is the best sign yet for this company that it's actually going to go forward. The company is standing behind its goal of a rollout by 2025, first flight by 2026, and certification by 2029. There's a lot of skepticism about this aircraft, and you and I are very positive. So from the get-go, we're like, yeah, this is great. But even even I think even we said it was a 50% chance, which was high because people think it's outlandish. But these are the little things that make it seem like, wait a minute, this is really happening. When you have the backing of Northrop Grumman, Northrop Grumman is a military contractor. They have millions of dollars, billions of dollars. If if they're in partnership with Northrop Grumman, that's a huge boost. It is. Collins Aerospace. This is also a sign that things are getting better. If they're now down to a granular level where they're working on anti-ice, anti-ice protection, 
and air data systems. <laughs> you know, so we're we're well into the design phase. They've got that prototype and they have this new design. And just like you said, look at the 787. It was a Sonic Cruiser. The 787 today <laughs> barely resembles that. Nothing like what, what the original design was. Right. So just like you said, when we see these reiterations and we see the design changing, that means they're hard at work. One thing I don't understand, and maybe you can explain this. So they're saying that four engines, it's definitely going to make, they're quieter because they're smaller engines versus two. How is that reducing operating costs? More engines usually means higher operating costs. I didn't get that part of it. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure about that either. We'll, we'll have to look into it. We can ask Greg, our engine expert, and, and we'll do some more research. But this is really exciting, Drew. As you said, we're down to that granular level where they're actually getting subcontractors and, and other partners for the systems in the airplane, which that could be a whole topic in and of itself that the listeners may not realize. It's not just Boeing who is building this airplane. It's Boeing and 300 different companies. It's not just right. Airbus who's building an airplane. It is Airbus and 250 other companies. Collins Aerospace is who does the the box for the KC-10. So I'm, I'm yep. familiar with Collins. And all these companies, once you start getting those contracts, that is a great sign for, for the boom. Yeah, because they're taking some of the risk too. What, what we're waiting for is the uh, engine manufacturer. There hasn't been one chosen yet. They want it to be sustainable fuel. So we'll see. I'm sure GE, Pratt & Whitney, and Rolls-Royce are you know, drooling over the possibility. So I'm sure they're hard at work. The fact that they said they're going to four engines, though, leads me to believe that they're talking with someone who might have said, we need to go to four instead of two. Good point. Just a thought. And that is such a good point. Yeah. And they might say, listen, if you can go to four, we can tweak this one engine that's already in production for this aircraft. Yeah, possibly. Maybe four. What was the um, the G the Global Explorer eight thousand that was uh, close to uh, Sonic, close to the speed of sound? Oh yeah, the the Global Express that's close to the yeah. speed of sound. Yeah, possibly four of those engines. engines. Who knows? <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> they're saying they have a goal of rolling this out by twenty twenty five. If this is out before the triple seven dash nine gets certification, <laughs> I'm going to laugh so hard. <laughs> this is a whole new paradigm shift. And Boeing is still trying to get a plane that was designed in the mid-90s or no, that came out in the mid-90s trying to get it certified. So a lot of confusion with Boeing and these deliveries. So we're, we're changing topics back to Boeing. What is going on with these deliveries? I'm confused. I think you're confused. I don't know exactly where we are. This is regarding the 737-10, the 787, and the 777-X delivery timelines. I thought that we would do an AvGeek public service announcement on each of them, Doug with everything we know right now. Yeah. Let's start with the 737. Right now, it's only the MAX 8 and the MAX 9, or the, the Dash 8 and Dash 9 that are available to to fly for airlines. Boeing still has a Dash 7 and a Dash 10 on the design board, and actually, they have the airframes built. They just haven't been certified yet. The Aircraft Safety and Certification Reform Act law of 2020 required updates to any new aircraft certifications issued. Boeing negotiated a two-year delay in enforcement, however, expecting that the FAA wouldn't sign off on its MAX 7 and MAX 10 before the end of 2022. This now seems unlikely. If the delay is not extended by Congress, these aircraft must meet new cockpit alerting requirements, further delaying certification. There was talk about the 737-10 program being canceled altogether, but it seems like these rumors are now quelled because of all these Dash 10 orders that are coming in. 
Congress is going to have to do something. I, so they've extended it for two years. If they need a couple more months to get the Dash 7 and the Dash 10, they need to do that. I mean, that that is going to affect the economy, jobs, Boeing, which is a huge employer. So I could see Congress, maybe this is what he was saying just to kind of push them to say, hey, we may have to drop the whole program. Mm-hmm. Possibly. Can you imagine what that would do to jobs and the economy in Seattle? Or 30, this is- 30 seconds. Let me fill the listeners in on, on what this means. The 777 has ICAS. It's a system that when something happens to the airplane, it tells us exactly what's going on. The 737 does not have that. So if something happens, we get a light and then we have to go into the book and and manually look it up and see what's going on. ICAS is a more user-friendly system and it leads to less chance of error by the pilots when they're going through the checklist. It doesn't mean that it's less safe. It just means that it's more labor intensive and it could lead to possible mistakes. doesn't mean the airplane is going to crash because of that. We, we have to be very clear. What this law is mandating is that any new airplane that is certified, it needs to have one of these systems that tells the pilots this is what's going on, as opposed to just a general hydraulic light that then the pilots have to troubleshoot. I did not know that the 737 did not have ICAS. No, that that's what this that's what this whole debate is about. Is Congress is saying any new airplane needs ICAS, an ICAS system, and the seven thirty seven dash ten and dash seven have not been certified yet. Meaning, if they get certified after December thirty first, two thousand twenty two, per this law, they will require an ICAS system. the The issue that we run into as well is that the seven thirty seven dash eight and dash nine do not have an ICAS system. So now you're taking two different sets of 737s, which are supposed to be the same family that have two different systems, which that could lead to, in my opinion, that could lead to confusion in the flight deck as well. When you're operating a Dash 8 and Dash 9 and you don't have ICAS, then your next flight, you might be on a Dash 10 that does. Maybe something happens on the Dash 9 that you're flying and you're expecting an ICAS. Like you, you can see how it could possibly lead to confusion for the pilots. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I did not know that. Just a public service announcement for the non-av geeks or non-aviation guys and gals listening. So the ICAS, it stands for Engine Indicating and Crew Alerting System. This is on the Boeings. Airbus has a similar system. It's called the ECAM, right? Engine Centralized Aircraft Monitor. This is stuff that's thrown. We throw this stuff around like everyone knows what it means. We don't know what it is. Sometimes even in operations, I have to explain, okay, ECAM, that's similar to the ICAS, but it's on Airbuses. But it's basically um, your control panel, right? It has so many, so much data in just one simple, easy to understand display. It's awesome. Right. Yeah. So we talked about the 737. Let's look at the other delays. The 787 deliveries have been stopped since October 2020. And I think, Doug, actually, the last delivery was April 2020 or something. So over two years now, this was stopped due to quality issues regarding gaps between fuselage sections. Boeing says the FAA has completed inspections on some aircraft this April, and they expect deliveries to resume this summer. There are even reports that some aircraft have been seen conducting pre-delivery test flights. Boeing commercial airplane CEO Stan Deal said... Maybe the ninth inning of a ball game, we're getting planes ready for the delivery process. 
they're saying this summer. So hopefully this month or next month. Yeah, that's good because I know American had to pair their schedule because they didn't have the wide bodies that they had expected to be able to fly it. That's just one airline. Lots of airlines are waiting on a lot of these 787s. We talk about Boeing and cash flow. They can't design an NMA or an MOM until they have cash flow and they can't get positive cash flow until they start delivering all these grounded 787s because they've been building these throughout the delay process. So they, they're just kind of like when the max was grounded, they're just getting stacked up waiting to deliver and they're not going to get the cash for those until they actually deliver them to the customer. Once they start delivering and they get the cash flow, then they can start worrying about what's next for the company. I also read Drew that Boeing plans, once they are allowed to start delivering them, Boeing plans to actually increase uh, production rate back to 2019 levels and possibly even increase on the 787. Did you see that? They're, they're thinking when they're back to that, they might be more than pre-COVID yeah. levels, six 787s a month. A month. Mm-hmm. That's great. So hopefully they can get to that. But you know, we keep pushing Boeing to come up with the NMA uh, 767 replacement Meanwhile, they have bigger problems, <laughs> yeah. right? They can't even get the current ones off the ground, literally. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk about the final Boeing that's delayed, the 777-9X. First deliveries are delayed to 2025, while Boeing, wait for it, works with the FAA to resolve <laughs> certification issues. The FAA told Boeing that it would not certify the 777-X until mid to late 2023 and rejected a request by Boeing to clear a certification hurdle citing numerous concerns about the lack of data and lack of preliminary safety assessment for the FAA to review. Some resources have been moved to get the 787 and 737 deliveries going. Did you see the takeoff from Farnborough? I did. It was it was great, but it was also concerning. I'm always thinking that it's going to stall. I, I really don't want to see a disaster, but it's pretty impressive what that plane can do. Very impressive. Yeah. And that they wouldn't, I, I know that on our group text, you, you said you were worried about that. They wouldn't do something like that if it wasn't within the safety margins of the airplane. Granted, it's test pilots who are, who are flying this, but they, w- they would never let it get below a speed at which it's unsafe. And if it starts to head that way, there are maneuvers that they can do to get it out of that. They're just showing the performance of the airplane. Very, very impressive. Very impressive. Yeah, I'd buy it. Yeah, I, I, I just don't have $300 million. Yeah, it's probably going to be more. Probably going to be more with inflation <laughs> now. Yeah. Something I was not able to find in the um, in the research for this. I don't know what the holdup is on the 777-9. I don't know what what the block is. So we, we knew on the 787. So you, really good explanation on the 737 and the ICAS and that plane not having it and the FAA concerned about this. The 787, we talked about the quality with the the panels, the fuselage panels, so I can understand that. 777-9, stay tuned. I'm still trying to see exactly what the holdup is. My understanding is that it had a couple of autopilot issues in some of the testing that they need to figure out what's going on, and and that's why it's delayed. It, it was some anomalies that now Boeing is, is having to work through and figure out. We were talking about drinks at the bar with a pilot and an ATC controller. During that time, we talked to uh, Joe, who's also a private pilot. He gave me some great advice, Doug. So my biggest mental block regarding my private pilot training is doing the flight deck flows in my head. And the flows are when you're getting the flight deck ready and you're doing your pre-flights, this is how you have an organized way of looking at all the instruments and the controls so that you can make sure everything is in place or everything is set how you want it. He said, I should just go to the airport and sit in the, sit in the plane and go through the motions. I'm planning on doing just that. So I'm going to see if the plane is available. 
even though I'm not flying and my instructor is not available this week, just going in there and just sitting on this Piper Warrior and just going through the flows in my head, it's all about just feeling comfortable in that plane. I want to feel like I'm in my car. Mm -hmm. I want to know what everything is. That's what I do. I want to feel at home in that flight deck. Doug, I'm learning to fly on a single engine Piper Warrior, which weighs about 2,400 pounds <laughs> with bags and people on it. You are flying a 777 with over 200,000 pounds of thrust and over 300 people behind you. What advice can you give me and our aspiring pilot listeners on how to get a handle on these flight deck flows? Do you have the ability to get posters of a Piper Warrior? I, I maybe look online on Amazon or Sporty's Pilot Shop or something. Okay. I, I know I sent you pictures when I'm in Denver going through my training. I have it taped up on my hotel wall. That way it gives you a, a visual image. It's not the same size as the flight deck, but you can mm-hmm. sit in front of that. We we in, in the Air Force, we called it bamboo bombers because it literally mm-hmm. was a, like pieces of wood that made it look like the flight deck with those (laughs) things taped to it at the airline. They call it paper tigers. Same concept. It's basically a a flight deck or a cockpit poster of the airplane that you're flying. You can sit in front of it and you can go through the motions with your hand from an educational standpoint, instructors, not, not just in aviation, like college professors, high school instructors from an instructional standpoint, if you do both verbal auditory and sensory the the more senses that you can add in to the learning Mm -hmm. process the more of a chance is going to stick in your mind so what i do and and this has worked out really well is i talk myself through it while i am moving my hand into the switch position and i'm looking at it i'm looking at the flight deck so that's that's visual i'm talking through it that's auditory and i'm moving my hand to the position of the switch that's sensory. That's three different senses that I'm using to learn the flow to the mm. point where it becomes muscle memory. When I get in the airplane now, like I, I don't even practice my flows anymore. I get in the in the airplane and it's just a natural. I, I know which checklist I'm on, what I need to do for each each step. And and it's because I just went through the paces in front of that poster. Yeah, you were insane. The first time you were on the 777, instead of being nervous, everything seemed like literally, you know, to use a phrase, you were on autopilot. Your hand was just moving and it was like you were just watching yourself because it was so natural for you. I wanted to feel natural and I wanted to be automatic. I don't want to think or look at a checklist to go through this stuff. You know, and that's what they say. The checklist is just a backup, you know, to make sure you did what you're supposed to. Mm Mm-hmm. Talking about flows, and I'm sorry, I, I know you have like just a couple hours notice that I put this in here. <laughs> so I'm not expecting you to rattle off all the triple seven procedures. Let's keep this short because we're again we're running long. <laughs> Let's go through just the basic procedures. We'll talk about a final check before you take off. Like what are you doing? Uh what do you do for an engine failure? What are the quick checks you do to resolve it? And uh what are you doing on landing? And uh I'll go first. And you can be as detailed or as as brief as you want. Because I know each section of this on a 777 could be the whole episode. <laughs> Let's talk about these flows. This, I, and I have the checklist in front of me because I didn't want to um, miss anything. Because like, for you, it's natural. For me, it's not. For the final check or the flow before takeoff on my little Piper Warrior, it's a beautiful plane. I have a, It's blue and white. <laughs> and it's just, it's built in 1976, but I just love that plane. Right before I take off, when I'm in the hold area for the runway, the final things I'm checking, Doug, I'm checking the trim to make sure 
that my trim, my elevator trim is set for takeoff, which is usually neutral. My flaps are zero to 25. We do um, one notch of flaps, which is 10 degrees on the Piper Warrior. So just the first notch of flaps. Carburetor heat, we don't think about. It's the summer, so I'm not thinking about that. That is off. The mixture, this is the, the mixture, the ratio between the fuel and air. That's what the mixture is. So that is full forward. So you want a lot of fuel in there going in there in, in the beginning. I make sure the fuel pump is on. Plane has a fuel pump, which I can turn off when the plane's flying because the fuel is flowing. It doesn't need the electrical fuel pump. But on takeoff, I'm turning the fuel pump on. Fuel selector, I'm looking at the two wing tanks and I'm switching it to the fullest tank. When I was taxiing, I had it on the, the lowest tank. So this way I can make sure both tanks are, uh, that I'm drawing fuel from both tanks. We do a departure brief real quick. And then we turn uh, before we turn on to the runway, making sure the door is latched, make sure all the lights are on, strobes, nav light, taxi light, all of those things are on. And then right before takeoff, I'll do um, with my co-pilot or my trainer, I'll confirm approach and departure clear. So I'm looking around for any traffic and I'll confirm that verbally approach and departure clear, get on the runway, put it to maximum power, which for us, for me is 2300 RPM. Mm. And then I'm doing one more check of the instruments to make sure that everything's in the green, release the brakes. And then as we're taking off, when we reach 40 knots, I'll confirm that speed is alive, which mean is which means the indicated airspeed is changing as we're climbing. accelerating. And then around 55 knots, the plane starts lifting up. And at 60 knots, I pull back a little bit and we lift off. How is it different on a 777? It's ultimately the same concepts. It's it's just different things that we do, but it's it's the same concepts. You're checking the systems of the airplane. You're making sure that it's airworthy and, and you're making sure that the area around you is clear so you don't have a runway incursion or something happen. My before takeoff flow can start at any time once we're off the gate, once the engines are started. And we have two portions of it. We, we have a line. We call it above the line and below the line. You can run above the line anytime you want as you're taxing out to the runway. You run oh. you run below the line within about yeah. two minutes of departure. So the okay. other day at Newark, we rounded the corner and there was a long line of like 15 airplanes ready to take off. We delayed the before takeoff checklist until we were about number five or six. Can I stop you for just a second? Yeah. So you're talking about above the line, below the line. So that sounds familiar because when we were doing the touch and goes... And I was st- restarting the whole takeoff checklist. And he said, no, 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 just do the below the line. Okay. So that's probably similar. It's just the last few items. You don't need to do the whole thing. Correct. Yeah, it's, it's probably okay. probably something like that. Let's say it's a relatively short taxi. I'll start doing, or the captain will call for the before takeoff checklist right as we start taxiing. It starts with the final weights. I get a final weight manifest from in ACARS from the company that says, this is what our, our total, our final takeoff gross weight is and what the change is from the plan. So I'll read... Final weights are 580,000 pounds minus 1,500, meaning we're 1,500 pounds less than what they had planned for. And then I check it on the checklist because we have the electronic checklist. I'll click it. It'll turn green. Next thing I do is I look at our takeoff speeds because we get our takeoff speeds again from ACARS. I check to make sure that it's in the box. And this is a call for both myself and the captain. We both have to verify that the takeoff speeds are in there. So I'll go through and I'll say takeoff gross weight is X, V1, V2, and rotate are these speeds set. Captain will say set, and then I'll click it. What is your V rotate speed? So mine's 60. 
60 knots? Usually it's about between 150 and 165, somewhere, okay. somewhere around there. The next thing I look at is trim. I look to make sure that the trim is that they'll give us a stab trim setting and I'll, I'll click it until it gets to that setting. And then I look to make sure that our elevator and aileron trim is zero. So I'll say what the stab trim is, zero, mm-hmm. zero set. Then we go into the FMC, which is our flight management computer, which is our nav- how we navigate the airplane. And we have to make sure that the correct runway is loaded in. We have to make sure that the correct standard instrument departure and transition is loaded in. Standard instrument departure, we call them SIDs. They have the first initial part of the of the SID is the same, but then there could be 10 different transitions, meaning if you're going west, you have one transition. If you're going east, you have another. So you're just making sure that your initial flight in the box, because you're going to be following the, the flight management guidance, you're making sure you're going to the correct mm-hmm. point per your flight plan. I verify that. The captain verifies that. Then we get to the line. At, at this point, we're just we're waiting until we are cleared for takeoff. Once or, or until we're within two minutes. There are only three items below the line. It's turning the transponder to TARA, which is Traffic mm-hmm. Advisory Resolution Advisory. It's okay. checking checking the recall button, which because on because we have ICAS, we don't actually have status lights that turn on automatically. Like on the 10, I have a whole row of like 30 lights that are warning warning and caution lights. And if something is wrong with the airplane, the light is on and I look up and I see it on. Because we don't have that on the triple, I have to push a recall button, which will bring up mm-hmm. the status lights and tell me if something is wrong. So I the hit status lights on, on the ICAST? Yeah, or status the, the stat, lights on we don't the... have a panel with the status okay. lights. The status lights show up on our display. And the only way right. I see that is by pressing this recall button. So I go T-A-R-A, hit the recall button, and then I should see nothing. As long as I I see the word recall and no yellow Mm -hmm. or red, then status of the airplane is good. And it's doing its its self-test at this point. So that's when we get the call from the flight to Brussels. Hey, we're coming off the runway because we got a status light. Exactly. That's that's exactly it. it. And then the the final step uh, below the line is the PA announcement for the flight attendants to be seated. On a couple of our, our variants, because we have four different 777 variants at our company, a couple of our variants, I have to do it verbally. I'll turn on the PA, so I listen mm-hmm. to make sure that when I when I read it on the mic, the flight attendants hear it. I'll say, flight attendants, please be seated for departure. On a couple of our variants, we have a button that I hit on the display, and it's the automated flight attendants, please be seated. Like, you, uh, you, I don't you like probably, you no, probably I like heard that. that. Human- yeah, I, I but, like it. I like hearing the pilot. Yeah, but say it's it. it's actually it's it, it it's safer for us to do that because that way it's mm-hmm. one less thing that I'm having to worry about when I get to that step. I hit the button and I move on to clearing and, and making sure that nothing is in our way. Got At it. that point, we get the runway verification. Both pilots have to say runway one right verified one one right verified. Then when we get cleared on the runway, I turn. I say, okay, approach end is clear hey, no one is going to land on top of us. Like I'm, yep. I'm looking. We get on the runway, set the power, two different engines because we have both Pratt's and GE's. So our initial power setting is a little bit different based on the the model that we're on. We let it stabilize at about 55% and one, which is the first compressor section. Once it stabilizes, we push it up. We hit the toga button, 
because the auto throttles are on the the takeoff go around button then sets the throttles the pilot flying says check thrust the pilot monitoring has to look to make sure the needles go up to whatever the limit is for that departure whatever the box calculated they say thrust set once we get to a hundred knots I call 100 knots because that's the low sp- or the the pilot monitoring calls 100 knots. That goes from the low speed abort regime to the high speed. Anything below 100, we're going to abort for a lot of things. Once mm, you hit 100, okay. you only abort for fires, engine failures or something that the captain deems would not be a flyable issue. Because you don't have enough runway we do to ha- stop. We do have enough runway. We always 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 have enough runway to stop at an abort before V1. After V1, okay. no. But up to V1, yes. Once you have a high-speed abort, something over 100 knots, you're going to have brake issues. You're going to have tire issues. Like You're going to really compound the situation. And most of the issues that we might get are things that you can still fly with and come okay. back around and land. So we really only abort over 100 knots for fire or engine issues. And then we hit V1, rotate, and, and we go. And you don't do a run-up. When you are going to 55%, that is our run up. That that is, because our like but let's say let, let's say on on the GE not not we don't hold the brakes. It, it's not a run okay. up like we hold the brakes, but on the GE engines we go up to fifty five percent N one, and then our takeoff setting might be ninety two. So we're we're going halfway up. We let the engine stabilize. We're we're still moving forward a little bit. We let the engine stabilize, and then we hit the toga. So when you're sitting on a triple seven, you're going to feel that. You're going to feel the initial movement. And then you're going to hear the engines really spool up. That's the second, yeah, I do feel that's that. the second step. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> Doug, this is I wasn't expecting this segment to be this good. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to go. Long. No, seriously, I, this is great. This was just the takeoff. We're way over. How about we do one a week? So next week we'll do engine failure and flight. Yeah, and we, I, you know, I, we can I take like our that. time. And then you know, once in a while we can just compare Piper Warrior and Triple Seven Three Hundred. You can show off how. <laughs> How, how much better the triple seven. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, Doug, again, these, epi- these episodes are getting really good. We have so much stuff to talk about. We're always going over. I, I remember in the first episodes, I think one of our episodes was 35 minutes because we didn't know each other that well and we were kind of reaching for stuff. But the more we do this, it's almost like we have more... <laughs> We have more stuff, even though you would think we've already talked about everything. <laughs> we have more stuff. For our listeners, we had uh, some uh, emails and some comments. We're going to save that for next week. Stay tuned. And uh, I love this this flight procedures segment that we just did. So I can't wait to continue doing that. All right, everyone, this podcast is your show. So go on our website, nextripnetwork.com, and let us know what's on your mind so that we can talk about it or give us your feedback. You can also follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Next Trip Podcast. Please tell your friends about us so that we can reach more people who love aviation and travel. Thanks to all of our listeners for your support and for joining the conversation. We'll see you next week. And in the meantime, stay aviation tough. This has been the Next Trip Podcast. Visit nexttripnetwork.com for information about previous episodes, trip reviews, aviation photos, and other aviation-related content. This is your show, so search for The Next Trip on Twitter and let Doug and Drew know what you want to talk about. Not on Twitter? You can also email them at nexttrip.podcast at gmail.com. Please consider leaving a review wherever you download your podcasts. It will help other listeners like you discover this show. 